Thank you for joining us and welcome to the second episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Today, we will be speaking to Naomi Rote Ariaza, a distinguished professor of law from Hastings College at the University of California. Naomi will be discussing the Guatemalan genocide and the historic process that saw a former head of state put on trial in a national court for genocide, the first time in which this has happened anywhere in the world. Whilst the convictions were overturned by the Constitutional Court, the importance of the process will stand, and the courage of the victims, the judges and the prosecutors against a culture of intimidation and impunity has changed Guatemala and the region forever. seventh anniversary of the trial that took place in Guatemala in 2013. That's important to remember for a number of reasons. For one thing, it's the first time ever that a country has tried its own leaders for genocide in its national courts. That never happened before. And it was done by national judges in a record amount of time with over a hundred witnesses, with documentary evidence that had never been seen before. And it led to a verdict that even though it was annulled on more or less made up grounds, still resonates in the country today. Guatemala is a small country. About 60% of the population is descended from the ancient Maya, and they now make up over 30 different language groups in the country. This majority has always been oppressed, has always been discriminated against, has always been the subject of genocide, starting with the Spanish conquest. And so when you talk about the genocide trial in 2013, it really depends on your perspective how you see the trial. So for the official narrative, the trial was about genocide arising from the counterinsurgency strategy of the military trying to put down a opposition and later guerrilla movement fighting for more equality in the country. And that conflict started in 1960 and ended in 1996. If you talk, though, to people in the Mayan majority, they will tell you that this was just a continuation of 500 years of genocide and that it was not the first genocide in the country, that there had been several, and that this was just the latest one. The worst period in recent memory was between 1980 and 1985. A U.N. debate was dramatically interrupted Friday afternoon with the emergency announcement that 5,000 Indians in a Guatemalan village were about to be murdered by government troops. There have been no reports that the massacre did in fact come off if it was even planned. Since March, there has been a new government headed by General Rios Montt, an evangelical Christian. He took power in a coup engineered by the Army's younger officers. The older, more right-wing officers say he's soft on the leftists and communists. The leftists and human rights organizations claim repression and murder continue under Rios Mott. During that period of time, 
600 villages disappeared, millions of people were displaced, uh, those who ran from their villages were bombed as they hid in the mountains, and many of them died of hunger and thirst. It was a terrible time. The UN, after a peace agreement in 1996, appointed a commission on historical clarification whose job it was to try to put together a narrative of what had happened and why. They said that 200,000 people had been killed during the period of conflict. 40,000 of them had been forcibly disappeared. That means picked up and never heard from again. And nobody knows where their bodies are. This was the situation in Guatemala when a number of civil society groups in 2001 decided that there had to be some accountability. The Truth Commission, or the Commission on Historical Accountability, was one of two truth-seeking efforts in the country. The other was called Remy, and it was run by the Catholic Church. It, too, came up with widespread evidence of grave violations of human rights. The Commission on Hysterical Clarification, uh, the UN Commission, found that acts of genocide had been committed in four parts of the country against four different ethnic groups. One of these was the Ishil area in northern Guatemala. But there were others in the eastern part of the country, in the central part of the country. Uh, and what the commission found was that there had been an intentional targeting of Maya, or at least of those part of those of Maya descent who were in opposition to the military. The commission, because the security situation in the country was terrible at the time, uh, decided not to hold public hearings. It held its hearings in secret, and no one ever got to hear the voices of the victims at that time. There was an amnesty law in place in Guatemala, but unlike many other parts of Latin America, the amnesty law had an exception for international crimes, including crimes against humanity and genocide. However, in order to apply that exception, judges needed to look on a case-by-case basis and decide whether or not the amnesty applied. Nonetheless, despite the fact that the amnesty law by its own terms didn't stop prosecutions for what had happened during the conflict, there was a de facto amnesty. Judges were afraid to move forward with these cases. The government was absolutely opposed to any kind of accountability. They wanted bygones to be bygones. Not surprisingly, since it was the same political forces that had supported the war that were behind the new civilian governments to a large extent. So... Really, for a number of years after the conflict ended, 
very little happened. There were a few things that were important. One was a process of exhumations uh, led by non-governmental organizations of trying to find the places where the bodies were buried. And this was extraordinarily important for the families who wanted to know what had happened to the bones of their loved ones. So exhumations went forward. Uh, there was eventually a government reparations program. There was some interesting archival materials that turned up mostly by sheer chance. One notorious thing that happened was a police station in the north of the city that neighbors complained had a lot of rats and stunk and was a public nuisance. And when investigators went to see what was going on, they found room after room after room full of moldering files from the national police going back to the beginning of the 20th century. Those archives were then cataloged and looked through and turned out to have lots of information about how the police had acted in conjunction with the army to kill and disappear opponents and perceived opponents of the regime. Nonetheless, given all of that, there were very few, as in one or two, trials. In 2000 and 2001, civil society groups filed cases alleging genocide in the national courts. Now, to understand how that happened, you need to know two things about Guatemalan law. First is that Guatemalan law allows victims to present complaints on their own without a prosecutor to a judge. And the judge can then order an investigation. At some point, the prosecutor's office has to become involved, but civil parties have a lot of independent ability to intervene in legal uh, proceedings. The other thing that's different in Guatemala from most countries in Latin America is that both genocide and aversion of crimes against humanity were already in the domestic penal code going back to the 1950s. So a lot of the legal issues that have bedeviled these prosecutions in other countries in Latin America didn't apply in Guatemala. Nonetheless, the cases were filed and there they sat. Prosecutors were afraid to move forward. Judges were afraid. Uh, few witnesses were called and practically no investigation was done. At that point, the victims decided that they needed to do something to push these cases forward. So they went to Spain. Spain at the time had an expansive law on universal jurisdiction, which allowed cases to be brought for genocide and other international crimes like torture, independently of where the perpetrators were or where the events had taken place. This is a form of jurisdiction that is ancient. It goes back to attacks on pirates it was used in the Eichmann trial coming out of the Nazi era. It was used in the Pinochet case against the former dictator of Chile. It was used against Argentine generals in the same way in the Spanish and Belgian courts. The Spanish courts spent a long time trying to figure out 
if they had jurisdiction. But finally, in 2005, the Spanish Supreme Court found that the case could be heard in Spain. At that point, a new judge began investigating, began hearing witnesses, began pulling together documentation, and asking for arrest warrants against the generals who were sitting in Guatemala. After a lot of backing and forthing, the highest court in Guatemala decided that they could not be extradited. The defendants could not be extradited to Spain. But at that point, the Spanish judge decided, okay, fine, even if we can't extradite, we can still hear from and pull together this case. And so a parade of witnesses showed up in Madrid, one after the other, to tell their story. And this turned out to be quite useful for pulling together the kinds of testimony that would later be used in the national trials for pulling together experts who could talk about why this was genocide, for pulling together people who could contribute pieces of the puzzle. And all of this material was later turned over to Guatemalan prosecutors, which then used it in order to pull together their own case against the military high command. In 2012, two things happened. First of all, starting in 2011, there was a new attorney general in Guatemala. Claudia Paz y Paz had been a human rights activist for years. She was also an international criminal law scholar and had actually written her doctorate on genocide in Guatemala. So she, unlike her predecessors, was much more willing to think about bringing a national case on genocide. The second thing that happened was that one of the main defendants, a guy named Efraín Rios Montt, who had been the head of the first military junta that had taken over uh, at the height of the genocide in 1982, he had been a senator, and that gave him immunity from prosecution. But in 2012, he lost his senatorial immunity. All of a sudden, these three things came together. The existence of the Spanish trial investigations and the materials that came out of those investigations, coming together with the loss of immunity for one of the main defendants with changes in the prosecutor's office. And let me say here that it wasn't just Claudia Pasipas, it was what she did. She cleaned out the prosecutor's office. She got rid not only of prosecutors who wouldn't do their jobs, but of a number of prosecutors who were widely known to be working with military intelligence, working with various parts of organized crime, And she built a specific unit dealing with human rights violations of the past within the prosecutor's office. And this turned out to be extraordinarily important for actually being able to push the case forward. The next question was, what would a genocide case in Guatemala look like? 
the genocide case in Spain had been very, very broad. It had encompassed, encompassed the four areas that the Commission on Historical Clarification had noted where acts of genocide had taken place. So the eastern area of Ravinal, southern Quiche, and Zacualpa, as well as the Ishil area. The prosecutors in Guatemala decided to focus their energy on one of those areas. And this was a long discussion both among the prosecutors and among the victims groups because there were victims groups from all over the country that had been pushing for trials in Guatemala and that had supported the trials in Spain. They had to come to the conclusion that they were going to allow and push and support the prosecutor's office to only move forward on one of the four areas that the Historical Clarification Commission had noted. And this was a very hard decision for people because it meant that their cases were put off until later. And given the weaknesses in the Guatemalan legal system and the pushback that everyone expected and that actually materialized, there was real concern that this might be the only genocide case that would go forward, and that the others, if they went forward at all, would take so long that both the defendants and the victims would be sick or dead by the time they ever got to trial. So this was a long and gut-wrenching discussion, but at the end, all of the victims' groups decided that they would see themselves represented in a single genocide case focused on a single area, that it was more important to move forward with the area where there was the most evidence. And so that's what the prosecutors did. The case the prosecutors finally brought was only against two defendants, Rios Montt and his intelligence chief, Rodriguez Sanchez. And in part, this was not on purpose. This was because other potential defendants uh, either had died or had been found incapable of understanding what would go on in a court proceeding, not mentally capable of understanding. And so some of the co-defendants who had been in the original case in Guatemala, were dropped for that reason. The trial took a little over two months. There were over a hundred witnesses. Uh, the charges were of genocide and crimes against humanity, as well as domestic crimes like murder and assault and other local law crimes against a little over 1,700 people from the Ishil area. And there were charges also of sexual assault, forced displacement, and others. The prosecutors spent the first part of the trial listening to eyewitnesses. 
The eyewitnesses that came forward spoke in Ishil, had to be translated. And of course, this gave rise to a lot of back and forth about the translations. Eyewitnesses talked about how their entire families had been killed. A group of women with their shawls over their heads to hide their faces talked about how they had been raped by soldiers. People talked about how they had been forced to flee into the mountains and how their families had suffered and many had died from hunger, from thirst, from the army bombing them, from the army deliberately destroying their food caches. People talked about how their animals had been killed, how their crops had been destroyed, how their entire life had been upended by military campaigns aimed at the Ishi area. Experts from all over the world, including from the U.S., from Spain, from Mexico, from other parts of the world, came and gave testimony about what forced displacement consists of and how it happened in Guatemala, uh, on sexual assault, on the patterns of the military's actions and how the way they operated showed that there had to be planning from the top, how there had to have been a concerted and deliberate effort from the very top of the military and from the military junta to try to destroy, at least in part, the Ishil people. There were a number of particularly dramatic pieces of testimony that I recall. One was a video image of Rios Montt. 30 years earlier, he had given an interview to a movie crew about his role as head of the military junta in 1982, where he said, I'm the head of the army. If I am not in charge of everything and I don't control everything, then what am I doing here? And I'm sure he never thought that this piece of film would come back to haunt him, but it did. Another dramatic moment was a protected witness testifying from a secret location outside the country, talking about how he had been one of the special forces who had gone into the Ishim area and how their orders had been to kill indiscriminately and to kill non-combatants. One of the experts testified that the Guatemalan elite and the military had for many, many years harbored an extreme form of racism in which their idea of how the country would progress was to kill all the indigenous people that were left. Cuando yo les pregunto a la élite económica y política qué hay que hacer para integrar el pueblo indígena a la nación, la respuesta de un 10% ya es muy interesante porque plantean que hay que exterminarlos. And she talked about her research in the extreme form of racism that existed in Guatemala and how that could influence the way the military thought about 
rebellious indigenous groups. Other experts talked about the particularities of the Ishil and how the Ishil people had traditionally been seen as particularly unruly, particularly difficult, particularly hard to control and rebellious, and how that too fed into an idea that all the Ishil had to be killed because they were all by nature, both backward and rebellious, and that that constituted the intent for genocide. Now, the genocide charge turned out to be the most controversial charge there. The military and some civilians were even prepared to accept that crimes against humanity had been committed. But the entire elite of the country joined forces to argue that whatever had happened, it wasn't genocide. In Guatemala, no hubo genocidio. In ningún régimen. In Guatemala, no hubo genocidio. In Guatemala, hubo un enfrentamiento. Hubo una guerra. It had been, according to them, part of a counterinsurgency struggle against Marxist communist guerrillas. And everything else that happened was unfortunate. But that's what happens. People get hurt in war. The prosecutors made the argument that it was genocide because the intent was to destroy the part of the Ishil people who were not willing to submit. Genocide is a very hard crime to prove. It requires the prosecutor to show not only that lots of people were killed. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even require that people be killed. What it requires is an intent to destroy a group in whole or in part as such. And a number of acts, including killing, wounding, conditions of life that are impossible, or taking away uh, children or preventing births within the group. That's what genocide requires. And usually, as here, the hardest part is showing that not only did the military have the intent to kill people, to displace people, to um, make people suffer, to torture them, but that they intended to do it in order to destroy the Ishil group as such. And that's why it was so difficult for people to accept. They said, um, this will make us a pariah state. Everybody will look at us and say, oh, those are the people that committed genocide. To which the victim said, exactly. That is the point. There was a debate within the prosecutor's office as to whether or not to bring the genocide charge. And at the end of the day, what prevailed was the desire of the victims' groups to have this called the way they saw it. They saw it, as I said at the beginning, as another in a series of genocides. And they thought it was important to say that this had not been just counterinsurgency, although it was that but that, as with many counterinsurgencies, 
was a counterinsurgency in order to put down a group of people. And in this case, the indigenous people of Guatemala, specifically the Mayan people. Now, this created some difficulties because, of course, there were soldiers who were indigenous. There were even some soldiers and paramilitaries who were Ishin. And so how could you say there was an attack against the group if some of them were on the other side? Well, the prosecutors argued and the judge found that it didn't matter because in the first place, some of those people, many of those people had been forced into uh, military or paramilitary service. And second, you didn't have to intend to kill every last one. You only had to intend to kill a part of the group. And here it was the part of the group that was not willing to submit to military domination. In the final judgment, which I'll talk about more in a second, one of the things that was very interesting on the genocide question that the judges found was that the attacks on women and children showed that this had to be genocide because there was no military reason why you would go after two-year-olds, six-months-old, babies still in the wombs of their mothers. There was absolutely no counterinsurgent justification for that. Uh, And so even if there might have been at the same time a counterinsurgency campaign going on, the fact that old people, women, children, babies had been killed in large numbers deliberately showed that this was genocide. That was the argument of the prosecutors. What about the defense? Well, the problem is we never really got a clear statement of what the defense argument was. It became clear early on that the defense strategy was not based on a substantive legal argument. It was based on delay and obfuscation and procedural maneuvers and tying the court up in knots. Ustedes son los rebeldes. Y yo, públicamente, les digo, no voy a descansar hasta verlos procesados, despojados de esa inmunidad y de esa ínfula de superjueces que tienen pero no son superiores a la ley. Se los digo. They told the judges they were going to throw them in jail. They yelled and screamed at the witnesses. They called the witnesses part of the guerrillas. They told uh, the judges that they had to change lawyers midstream. At another point, they just walked out. Me parece que las audiencias del debate, o por lo menos esta del día de hoy, no puede ventilarse. Porque esto pertenece a otro juzgado, a otro tribunal, a otro órgano jurisdiccional. Nos ponemos de pie y abandonamos esta sala. Abogados, no se deja salir, no se deja salir. And the trial had to be delayed for a week while the judge appointed public defenders for the defendants were left on their own, looking rather forlorn, I've got to say, in the courtroom. On May 10th, the judges decided that Riosmont 
was guilty of genocide and crimes against humanity, and they sentenced him to 50 years in jail. Los juzgadores hemos optado por imponer la pena de 50 años de prisión inconmutables. The courtroom, which had been full to overflowing during the whole trial, erupted into applause. Many of the people who had been listening to the trial jumped up and started clapping and crying and singing. The entire victim's part of the audience burst into a song at that point. The defendants tried to leave, and the judge had to call on the police to restrain them. She ordered the defendants taken into custody, and they were taken away. This was the high point. This was the point where, for a brief moment, we thought, wow, justice can be done on a national level. People can see it and touch it and feel it. It can be in the national newspaper, be on the radio every day. Now, remember, this was the first time that people had heard the stories of the survivors. This was the first time that the voices of the survivors had been heard by the whole country since 30 years. So it created a dynamic that had not been heard before. This was especially important for two groups. One was people in the Ishil area who listened intently and who were thrilled for the most part that the trial had happened. The transcript of the trial uh, was later compiled into a book and a caravan of human rights groups took the book to the towns in the Ishil area and presented it to the local indigenous authorities as a record of what had been said about them. The other group for whom this was extraordinarily important was the young people. Young people hadn't lived through the war. Their parents for the most part, hadn't wanted to talk about it. Nobody had wanted to talk about it. There was a silence and a void in the country that you could feel, but you couldn't really get at. And so as young people growing up, hearing these stories was a revelation. It explained the silence of their parents and grandparents. And it triggered a lot of youth activism, a lot of art, a lot of music, a lot of theater, a lot of new political commitment that two years later would result in huge mobilizations, not around genocide this time, but around corruption. There were other reactions to the trial. The private sector, terrified that being branded a genocidal state would have a negative impact on business, pressured the courts to annul the verdict. And in effect, 10 days later, based on a press conference by the heads of the private sector, the Constitutional Court 
by a three to two decision, decided to annul the trial and have to start all over again. So technically, the trial did not lead to conviction and jailing. In the minds of the people who listened, however, they didn't care that there had been a technical, very dubious, based on very thin legal reasoning kind of annulment. They cared about the evidence that had been put out there. There was also, predictably, a backlash. Some of the lawyers who had been involved in the case had to leave the country. The judges couldn't appear in public without being threatened. The chief judge, Yadmin Barrios, was suspended. She was called on the carpet by the Bar Association, and it took her a year to clear her name. Claudia Pasipas, the chief prosecutor, was had her term cut short by 10 months by the Constitutional Court. The victims started feeling pressure and threats. Human rights groups started feeling pressure and threats. The lawyers who had been involved, several of them ended up having to leave the country temporarily. The judges that had been involved in the trial started finding that either they were overwhelmed with work or no cases were sent their way. On the other hand, they were also treated for the first time as heroes, as important figures in maintaining the rule of law. One of the things that came out of this trial, I think, was a change in the way people looked at judges. The legal system in Guatemala has never worked well. There's never been a sense that the law is enforced through courts to do justice. On the contrary, for time immemorial, for poor people, for Mayan descent people, the courts have been a place where only rich people win, where only the state wins against you. And so one of the things that happened after the trial that was really important was a change in the way many people saw judges. Some, of course, saw them as having overstepped their bounds and having been converted to the side of the former insurgents. But many people, both in the capital and in the countryside, saw the judges as finally, for the first time, doing what judges were supposed to do, which is to uphold justice, to listen impartially. So the judges were treated both as outcasts, but also for many other people as heroes, as public figures. The role of judges in the country was seen as being much more important than it had been previously. People started paying attention to how to strengthen the judiciary, how to strengthen the prosecutor's office. And this is something that I think has been a lasting legacy of the trial. There have been, in the wake of the genocide trial, a number of other trials that have been important. One 
The victim's name is Molina Tyson. It was a forced disappearance case of a 15-year-old that resulted in the former head of the army, Benedicto Lucas, and the former head of the high command, Callejas y Callejas, being convicted on charges of torture and forced disappearance. And these guys, as much or maybe even more than Rios Montt, had been responsible for designing the campaign of genocide during the 1980s. There were also cases of sexual assault victims who came forward in the wake of the genocide trial and told their story of having been enslaved both as domestic slaves and as sexual slaves at an army base. And those who were in charge were convicted also by Judge Yadmin Barrios. Uh, the genocide trial itself recommenced and a separate panel of judges found last year that genocide had been committed in the Ishil area. By this time, Rios Montt was old and sick and incapable of participating in the trial. There have been other trials uh, against lower-ranked soldiers, some of them people who had been living in the United States and were found in the United States and deported to Guatemala in order to stand trial, some of them after having been tried and convicted in United States courts, not of crimes against humanity, but of visa fraud. Other legacy of the trial, young people becoming more active is a legacy. A change in the way the judiciary is seen is a legacy. The effect in the Ishida region is a legacy. But there's one more that I think is important. And that is the ability of the courts to carry out complex trials. This was the biggest and most complex trial that had ever been seen, especially on international related issues. And the things that the judges and prosecutors and even the defense learned from this trial later were put to use in the subsequent cases in Guatemala involving not cases from the era of uh, armed conflict, but cases surrounding the subsequent devolution of some of the people involved into members of organized crime and members of rings of grand corruption including a guy who had been present as a young officer in the Ishil area, had been in charge of the barracks in the Nebach area of the Ishil region, had committed war crimes, then eventually became a general and eventually became the president of Guatemala and was forced to resign and sent to jail for grand corruption committed during his period in the presidency. That would not have happened if it hadn't have been for the example set by 
the genocide trial. If it hadn't have been for the changed way judges and prosecutors were organized and saw themselves in part due to the genocide trial. So seven years later, Guatemala is in another period of backlash, this time against the anti-corruption efforts uh, that followed on from the lessons of the genocide trial. But we've been there before, and the backlash triggers its own backlash. The legacy of the genocide trial is an enduring one. And I think that when we see the next turnaround and the next upswing of the demands for accountability from civil society that still persist in Guatemala, despite very unfavorable circumstances, just as they persist in other countries in the region, just as they persist in other countries around the world, we'll see that the example and the legacy and the lessons learned from the genocide trial will continue to inform how people both in the country and internationally persist in seeking justice for international crimes, for grave crimes, for grave human rights violations, for grand corruption that takes away the education and the health of the society. And that we'll see that this example will be held up as the way to move forward. Naomi, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for being a guest on the Guernica Accountability podcast series. One question that we ask each of our guests in this series, what does accountability mean to you, and what can we do better? Let me start with the first one. Accountability is a very simple concept. It's the concept that with power comes responsibility. There's a responsibility to those you harm And there's a responsibility to everyone. So for me, accountability isn't just about criminal justice, although that's surely part of it. There are some crimes that need to be held to account for. People need to be held to account for. But it's also about public acknowledgement. It's about redress. It's about putting things right. It's about recognizing the humanity and the worth of victims. It's about rebalancing the social order so that those who have been able to do what they want with no limits and no sense of public morality can no longer do so. It's about reestablishing social trust. It means making real the promise of never again. We say never again, and then never again happens. Accountability is a necessary part 
of making that promise of never again real for large-scale crimes. It's an end to impunity. It's an end to poor people going to jail for stealing a loaf of bread and rich people being able to sack entire economies without any consequence. It's rich people and powerful people and people who hold military and economic power being able to literally get away with murder no more. That's what accountability means to me. Now, what could we do better? Well, I think we need to think more broadly, both about the kinds of things we want accountability for and how we get there. So I've spent the last few years thinking about accountability for crimes that are not now considered international crimes per se, although they are prohibited in international law, but we don't have international courts thinking about them and dealing with them. And there's two. One is, as I've said uh, earlier, grand corruption. We need to think about how at a certain point, the sacking of the state, the taking of the money that was supposed to uh, serve to educate children, uh, to finance hospitals, to finance economic programs, to keep uh, people alive, that money is siphoned off into houses on the French Riviera and yachts uh, and political party financing. Um, at a certain point, that is an international crime, and we need to recognize it as such, not necessarily through the same mechanisms that we use uh, for genocide or crimes against humanity, but we need to do a better job there. And the other is environmental crime. We all depend on the life of the planet. If people are deliberately putting profit above the life of the planet and killing the forests and killing the air and changing the climate knowingly, that, it seems to me, we need to do a better job in figuring out how there's accountability, not necessarily criminal accountability, but accountability for making that conscious choice to put private gain above future generations and above the well-being of people in every corner of the planet. So that's one way in which I think we need to do better. The other way in which I think we need to do better is I think we need to think more creatively about how national uh, mechanisms can work together with international support uh, in order to uh, improve how both criminal justice 
So accountability narrowly defined, but also accountability more broadly defined can work better. Uh, There are some positive examples out there. They've all faced incredible backlash. Uh, One comes from Guatemala itself, the Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, which was shut down last year after 11 years of helping strengthen the prosecutor's office uh, and helping to strengthen the courts, including in ways that made possible the genocide trial. But the CC is only one kind of example. There are all other ways in which we could use national uh, networks of prosecutors' offices to help prosecutors in other countries uh, to protect witnesses, uh, to protect lawyers, to protect those uh, who now are in grave danger if they raise questions about accountability uh, for war crimes, for crimes against humanity, for grand corruption, or for environmental depredation. Uh, We need to do a better job protecting those people. So I think thinking about how the international can support the national better, being more creative about that, and thinking about how we can encompass uh, some of the current challenges that we're looking at uh, and that are likely to be part of the response to the current uh, pandemic crisis, um, including um, accountability for the use of funds that are supposed to be for fighting the pandemic or for opening up the economy, Uh, Where's the accountability for those funds? Uh, That's a question we need to be asking right now. Um, On a little more long-term basis, um, where's the accountability for the environmental destruction that is making it easier and easier for zoonotic or animal-based viruses to jump from animals to humans? That's a question of environmental degradation and of forms of consumption, especially of animals, that may no longer be possible. And accountability going forward, at least, for not creating new outbreaks, I think is something that we'll also have to think about. That was the second episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast, the Guatemala Genocide Trial. And that was Naomi Rote Ariaza speaking about the genocide in Guatemala and the attempts of the victims to seek and obtain justice. What Naomi spoke about is precisely what we want this podcast series to be about, accountability in different parts of the world. What it means to each of us, as we will inevitably understand it to mean different things in different contexts. Naomi's words were inspiring and lifting. It shows what can be done, but more importantly, what should be done. This was a subject that I knew little about before today, and I hope you, like me, walk away from this with a better understanding of the importance of the trials in Guatemala and Spain. It is through experiences such as this that we can all learn how to do things better. Throughout this series, we hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. Next week, we travel from Guatemala to Syria. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, 
please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can follow us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Thank you.